Greetings, this is a reading of the book The Airship Golden Hind. Some of the language in this book has not aged well and is indeed no longer politically correct take caution when listening to this visual audiobook. Footage and photography are provided by Photations. At Photations, we believe that the world would be a better place if people spent their time being creative, joining us and practicing art so we all can be the master of art. Find art prints available at our store www.fortationstore.com. Keep our artwork alive by making a donation at fortationsdonations.com. The Airship Golden Hind by Mercy F. Westerman. Chapter 3 The Golden Hind. Appropriate name The Golden Hind marked Bramsden as the 3XR. If officers made their way towards the concealed hangar, that's what Drake's ship was called, and he was the first Englishman to circumnavigate the world. Yes, replied Foster Dyke. We must take it as an obvious that this Golden Hind will do. In the air, what her namesake did on the sea. Not in every respect, I hope, said Kenneth Kennan. With a laugh, Drake did a considerable amount of filibustering on his voyage, I believe. A uh, yes, answered Sir Reginald. Those were good old days now left, he added. Mind yourselves, the brambles are a bit dangerous. Turning off the grass grown road, and down a side path, the two chums found themselves entering a dense thicket that formed an outer fringe of the pine wood. Short cut, remarked Foster Dyke, black and ugly now, there you are. A glade in the wood revealed the end of a lofty corrugated iron shed, the hangar in which the golden hind was fast approaching completion. The baronet knew his way about, he knew how to deal with the dictatorial and often completely muddled officials who ran the surplus disposals board and had succeeded in obtaining, at a comparatively low cost, a practically new airship shed together with an enormous quantity of material. Now tell me what you think of her, he said, throwing open a small door in the rear end of the building. Kenyon and Bramsden paused in astonishment at what they saw. The Golden Hind was neither airship nor aeroplane, in the strict sense of the word, but a hybrid embodying the salient features of both the fuselage, constructed almost entirely of aluminium, was a full 120 feet in length, and enclosed so as to form a series of cabins or compartments. Amidships, these attained a beam of 15 feet, tapering four and aft until the end compartments terminated in a sharp wedge. Wherever there were observation windows, they were glazed with light, but tough fireproof solid, sufficiently strong to withstand wind pressure. On either side of the hull, as Foster Dyke termed it, were six planes, arranged in pairs, each being 30 feet in four and aft direction and projecting 25 feet from the side of the fuselage. Thus, the total breadth of the Golden Hind was well under 
60 feet on angle brackets rising obliquely from the fuselage were six large aluminum propellers chain driven by means of six 350H B-motors. Some powered their remark canyon enthusiastically. Rather greets original, sufficient to lift her independently of the gas bag, while in the unlikely event of the motors giving out, there is enough lifting power in the envelope to keep her up for an indefinite period. Did you notice the small propellers in the wake of the large ones? Yes, sir, replied Brimsden. Left-handed plates. Precisely agreed, Foster Dyke, they work on the same shaft, only in a reverse direction. It's a little stunt of mine to utilize the eddies in the wake of the main propellers. Yes, patrol-driven. I tried to find an ideal fuel, one that is non-inflammable or practically so, except in compression, but that stunned me so far. There's a huge fortune awaiting the chemist who succeeds in producing a liquid capable of conforming to these conditions. I even made a corded fired motor, one something on the maximum gun principle, fed by corded brain from a hopper. It did splendidly as far as developing power was concerned, but the difficulty of excessive consumption and the pitting of the walls of the cylinder did me, however, my experiments haven't all been failures. Now look at the gas bag. It's only partly inflated, observed Peter. Now fully corrected, flustered egg, the envelope is a rigid one of aluminum subdivided into 49 compartments, each of which contains a flexible ballonet. Each ballonet is theoretically proof against leakage and practice. There is an almost inappreciable porosity which hardly counts for a comparatively short period. Say a month the gas isn't hydrogen, nor is it the helium we use during the war. Helium, although practically non-inflammable, is heavier than hydrogen, fortunately. I hit upon a rather smart youngster who had been in, in a government laboratory before he joined the R.F. With his assistance, I discovered a gas that is not only lighter than hydrogen, but is as non-inflammable as helium. I've named the stuff brodium, after the youngster who helped me so efficaciously. When this stunts over, we're going to work the gas on a commercial basis, but for the present, it's advisable to keep it a secret. You observe that the section of the envelope is far from being circular. The horizontal diameter is three and a half times that of the vertical. That gives less surface for a side of wind and consequently less drift, while the cod's head and mackerel tip ought to give a perfect streamline. You carry a pretty stiff lot of fuel with those motors, remarked Kenyon. Rather was the reply enough for 5,000 miles which means allowing for deviations from a straight uniform course about six halts to replenish patrol tanks we carry no water ballast of any description. When the fuel supply runs low, 
there is a tendency for the airship to rise, owing to the reduced weight to contract this. A certain quantity of rhodium is exhausted from the balnets into cast iron cylinders where it is stored under pressure until required again. The leakage during this operation is less than one half percent now will get on board. Past groups of busy workmen, the three ex-officers, made their way. Both Kenyon and Bramson noticed that the men worked as if they had an interest in what they were doing. Several they recognized as being in the same flight in which they had served on the other side of the channel. Like old times, said Kenyon in a low voice. Rather, old son agreed his chum. They boarded the Golden Hind, where workmen were putting finishing touches to the interior decorations of the cabins. The floor was composed of rigid aluminum plates corrugated in order to provide a firm foothold and temporarily covered with sacking to prevent undue wear upon their relatively soft metal. The door, one of the four by which they entered, was on the port side after it opened into a saloon twenty feet by seven feet, which in turn communicated with a fore and aft alleyway extending almost the extreme length of the fuselage. We'll start right aft and work further, said Foster Dyke. If you can suggest any alterations in the internal fittings, let me know it often happens that a new arrival spots something that the original designer has overlooked. Must have taken some thinking out, Sir remarked Bramston. Mzees agreed, Sir Reginald. I'm afraid I spent some sleepless nights over the business. This is my cabin. The chums found themselves in a compartment measuring fifteen feet in a fore and aft direction and ten feet across the further bulkhead, though with diminishing to the rounded end of the nacelle. It was plainly furnished a canvas cot, a folding table, and two camp chairs comprising the principal contents. The large windows with celluloid panes afford a wide outlook, while should the atmospheric conditions be favorable, the windows open after the manner of those in a railway carriage. Retracing their steps, the chums inspected the motors. Immediately further of the owner's cabin each was in a compartment measuring ten feet by six feet leaving an uninterrupted alleyway nearly three feet in length between. The fuel and oil tanks are underneath the alleyway Foster Day pointed out. I'm using pressure feet in preference to gravity feet. It keeps the center of gravity lower. What do you think of the engines? Clinking little motors, replied Kenyon enthusiastically as he studied the spotlessly clean mechanism with professional interest. There are six motor rooms. Three on each side observed the baronet. I am taking twelve motor mechanics to be on the safe side. When we are running free, one man will look after two engines, but in any case half the number will be off duty at a time now. This is your cabin. 
He opened a sliding door on the port side, corresponding with the officer's dining room on the starboard side. It was a compartment, 20 feet, ply 6 feet 6 inches, with a bunk at each and running at four ships, and as plainly furnished as the owner's quarters. Heaps of room, declared Bramston, and warming apparatus to Yes, replied Foster Dyke. We had the exhaust laid under the cabins, nothing like keeping warm at high altitudes. Warmth and good food, that's more than half the battle see this ladder. He indicated a metal ladder in the alleyway, clamped vertically to the outer wall of the cabin. Leads you that hatchway, he continued, right to the upper surface of the envelope. There's an observation platform useful to take stellar observations and all that sort of thing, but you won't find a machine gun there, he added with a laugh. Tassing between the midship pair of motor rooms, Foster Dick halted in a doorway on the port side. Pantry and kitchen, he remarked. I'm taking a couple of good cooks. All the stoves are electrically heated. There's a dynamo working off the main shaft of each of the midship motors. The starboard one provides juice for the kitchen that on the port generates electricity for the searchlights and internal lighting. Underneath are fresh water tanks and dry provision stores. On the port side, corresponding to the kitchen were the air mechanics quarters while beyond the further motor room, the alleyway terminated, opening into a triangular space 30 feet long and 12 feet at its greatest breadth. The crew's quarters, explained Foster Dyke. Ample accommodation for eight deck hands and the two cooks you'll notice that the headroom is less than elsewhere. That's because of the navigation room overhead. The chums looked upwards at the ceiling. There was no indication of a hatchway of any description. You gain the navigation room from the alleyway, explained Sir Reginald, noting their puzzled glances. Dave's the inconvenience of disturbing the watch below by having to pass through their quarters up with you, Kenyon. Think you're lucky, Sparse, you're not a bulky fellow, mind your head against that girder. Bransden followed his tone, the baronet bringing up the rear. The combined chart room and navigation compartment was spacious in extent, but considerably consisted with an intricate array of levers, telephones, indicators, switches, and a compact wireless cabinet. In the center was a table with clamps to hold a large size. Chart right in the eyes of the ship was a gyroscopic compass, which, by reason of the needle pointing to the chute instead of the magnetic north pole, greatly simplified steering a course, since those complicated factors, variation and deviation, were eliminated. Atometers, healing indicators, barometer, Thermometer and chronometer, with other scientific instruments, completed the equipment of the room, which was in telephonic communication with every part of the airship. From the car, the three men ascended to the interior of the envelope, 
climbing by means of aluminum rungs bolted to the flexible shaft once inside the rigid envelope. It was possible to walk the whole 500 feet length of the airship along a narrow platform. From the latter, crossways ran at frequent intervals so that access could be obtained to any of the ballonists. The interior reeked of the strong but not obnoxious fumes of the perdium. Leaks somewhere remarked Canyon, sniffing audibly. Yes, agreed Foster Dake. One of the supply pipes gave out this morning, otherwise you wouldn't know by the sense of smell that the envelope was fully charged. He struck a match and held it aloft. It burned with a pale green flame. I wouldn't care to do this with hydrogen. He remarked non-inflammability of the gas practically does away with all risk. When you recall the numerous accidents to aircraft in the earlier stages of the war, you will find that in over 80% they were caused by combustion. Of course, I'm referring to disasters other than those caused directly by enemy action now carry on. Up you go. No, hold on, he added, as a bell rang shrilly just above their heads. One of the workmen coming down, said Foster Dyke. Opening a flap at the top of this shaft automatically rings an alarm. Otherwise, anyone ascending might stand the risk of being kicked on the head by the feet of someone else descending. Thy Jove, I know that chap, exclaimed Kenyon after the mechanic had descended the long vertical ladder. Yes, it's Flight Sergeant Hayward, added Bramston, he got the D. Z.N. For downing two botched planes over Batbound. That's right. Agreed the baronet jolly fine mechanic he is, too. Do you happen to know how he came to join the Royal Flying Corps now? Then I'll let you into a secret. It was in 16 that he enlisted. Previous to that, he was a conscientious objector, and, I believe, a genuine one at that what caused him to change his opinions was rather remarkable. Do you remember? At Sep Raid over Lancashire, Hayward was driving a motor lorry that night somewhere up in the hills north of Manchester. A bomb fell in the road some yards behind him and blew the back of his lorry to bits. He came off with a shaking and a changed outlook on life. Next morning, he joined up, yes, Hayward, quite a good sort. He's been invaluable to me. Had any trouble from inquisitive outsiders, sir, asked Kenyon. No, none, whatever, replied Foster Dyke. Touch what people in the village hereabouts have seen enough aircraft during the war to take the edge off their curiosity. As for our rival competitors, well, if they can pick up a wrinkle or two, it will make the contest even more exciting. If we succeed, there'll be Easter, said Bramston. Yes, agreed the baronet, it's the first who scores in these undertakings. See what a fuss was made when the Atlantic was first flown by aeroplanes if the fee were repeated. 
not a fraction of public interest would be directed to it. The novelty has gone, as there were even interests in the flight to Australia in itself an epic of courage, skill, and determination was limited. Sensations of yesterday become mediocrities of today. For instance, Blériot's flight from France to England. See what an outburst of excitement that cost. Since then, thousands of machines have crossed the channel without exciting comment. Now I think I've shown you everything that is to be seen. How about lunch?